In the name of the Father and the Son and God's Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. We ought to learn to expect something good from every situation. That's the line from an article that got me started on this little Lenten series uh, that we are in the midst of on hoping. And for those of you who haven't been here, we are about halfway through that. Um, if you weren't here, um, let me remind you that on the first week we began with just a few general observations about hope. The first being that what breath and water are to the human body, uh, hope is to the human spirit. So we say when there is, where there is life, there is hope. But the deeper truth, of course, is to say where there is hope, there is life. The second of those initial observations was that hope is grounded in reality. In, in other words, there is a significant difference between fantasy, which is not real, and hoping. So hope sees what is possible but has not yet been realized. Hope is essential, but it is not absolute. It has to be grounded in reality. Well, this morning I want to lay a third leg to that tripod and suggest to you that hope is organically connected to help. So hope is not just an internal attitude. It is not purely subjective. But rather, hope believes that there is help out there beyond ourselves that can come to us and give us something that we cannot give to ourselves. Now, I want to suggest to you that that is an idea that does not come easily to many of us. We have made so much of the uh, self-made man and woman in our society that the whole idea of being dependent or needing someone beyond ourselves is really frowned upon. But the truth is, the way to live hopefully is to have a profound trust that there are energies beyond us. There are energies over which we have no control that have our good at heart, that really do care whether we sink or swim. In the ancient uses of our language, those two words, hope and help, were actually often used interchangeably. I've mentioned to you before, I had a seminary classmate whose first call was in Appalachia. And uh, Steve was very fond of saying that some of those mountain folk would say to him, I would like to hope you out. Um, implicit in our hoping is a sense that there is a grace to help in times of trouble. Which leads to the question that I want us to focus on this morning, which is, what can we expect from God? What kind of help can we hope for? Years ago, uh, when I was getting ready to leave seminary, one of my professors gave me a little blue book. Uh, it was entitled, A Grief Observed, by a man named N.W. Clerk. And uh, my professor said that he had found this to be very impressive. So uh, that summer, I read it. And it turned out to be one of the shrillest expressions of religious disappointment that I had ever read. 
Now, the interesting thing I discovered not long after that was that it was actually written by C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest of the Christian writers of the 20th century. Um, he had published it under a pseudonym because it was so shrill in its acknowledgement of disappointment, he was afraid that many of the people who had come to faith through his writings would be completely disillusioned. Because the little book was, um, it grew out of his experiences of losing his much-loved wife, Joy Davidman. Um, they had married under unusual circumstances. Um, Lewis was a bachelor until he was in his mid-50s. He frequently said that what had been denied him in his 20s and 30s, when some people at least fall in love, had been given to him in his 50s. And uh, he and Joy had four wonderful years together. But almost as soon as that gift was given, it was taken away. And he grieved terribly her death from cancer. So Lewis was a journaler. So he wrote down all of these different thoughts and feelings. And right before his own death, which you may remember happened on the same day that President Kennedy was assassinated, it was a horrible day for humanity, right before his death, he was persuaded to publish this part of his journal. And the reason that I share that with you this morning is because it raised the question for me uh, not just as a minister, but as a fellow traveler, um, how do we um, speak of Christian hope without setting people up for disappointment? Lewis made it very clear at the beginning of his book that he felt like he had been sold a bill of goods. He felt like he had been promised something out of his religious resources in relationship to grief, and then when it happened... It hadn't materialized. Well, that's how the book begins. Um, the interesting thing is that by the middle of the book, um, Lewis begins to realize that maybe the problem was actually his expectations and not what actually happened. He said he had constructed ahead of time what he thought should happen what he thought he could expect from God. And when that didn't happen, that's when he became so upset. But when he began to cleanse the lens of his expectations, so to speak, um, he began to realize that God had given him refuge, had given him strength, but it came in such a different way that he was expecting that he had missed it. But you see, it raises the whole question, how can we handle the problems, the, the promises of God responsibly? How can, what can we really expect from God? Anyone who knows the Bible knows that they are filled with incredible promises. The psalmist uh, writes, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Or those words from Isaiah that I so often quote, at memorial services, those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Well, if words mean anything, all of these converge around the idea that as you and I go through the peaks and the valleys that make up a lifetime, that God is going to be 
present, that there is, is going to be help for us along the way. And so the question is, how do we lay hold of this incredibly hopeful promise without setting ourselves up for the kind of disappointment that Lewis journals in, 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 in his book? I mean, it's hard enough to go through grief and all of the struggles of life without feeling like you got sold a bill of goods. The key, it seems to me, is to realize that according to the scriptures, there is not just one way that God promises to be our refuge and strength. There are at least three different forms that grace comes in. And the key is to have wide enough expectations of how God will work in your life that you don't set yourself up for disappointment. So what are those three ways that God can be counted on to be a part of our lives? Well, the first is, is what we might call events of intervention. When God, for God's own reasons, breaks into the world and just alters the shape of our circumstances um, that we find ourselves in. Sometimes God chooses to come and just God alters the situation that we find ourselves in. The scripture is full of these. We call them miracles. Thomas Jefferson wrote them out of his Bible called the Jeffersonian Bible. But even today, there are illnesses that just go away. There are masses that disappear. And doctors and nurses are left shrugging their shoulders and just smiling. Now, of course, during the early part of the 20th century, the whole idea of the miraculous really came under suspicion with the development of the scientific method. And to this day, there are many people who think that the age of miracles was simply a time when people didn't understand all that we do today, despite the fact that there are uh, many scientists who today point to powers uh, beyond our comprehension, and despite the fact that the scientific method itself cannot be proven by the scientific method. Um, there are simply things uh, that happen along, that w along the way. Um, the old black preacher used to describe slack-jawed amazement as our reaction to that. We simply can't explain them except to say that the divine has somehow chosen to alter things. And I think we have to acknowledge that that's the first hope that any of us have when we are up against it. When we get to the end of our rope, checkmate is what some people would call that, our first impulse in those moments is to hope for a miracle, that God will come and solve our problem for us. And I think it's with very good reason that that is our first approach, because if you think about it, given the way every one of us came into this world as help, helpless infants, that's the way we first responded. Every one of us came into this world with incredible needs and no ability to meet those. When I was an infant, all I could do was sit there and cry and hope that somebody was going to come and meet my needs. You and I are the product of that kind of intervention. So should it really surprise us, no matter how mature we've gotten, no matter how well-educated we may become, 
that when we find ourselves in situations um, where we need that help, this is our first inclination. But what is critical, you see, is to understand that while this is our first hopeful inclination, and while I really do believe that these kinds of intervention happen, not just once upon a time, but today, um, it is critical to realize that miracle is not the only thing that is worthy of being called divine. I have this great fear that some of these TV evangelists and people on the far right of the church have talked so much about miracles, they have given us the feeling that if it, it is not a supernatural healing in the name of Jesus, you know, with the fainting and the whole thing, that it is not worth calling divine. And that, it seems to me, is a recipe for disappointment. But the clue is to hold on to the miraculous and at the same time lay alongside of it two other ways that the scriptures say God comes into our lives with a grace to help. The first of those is what we would call collaboration or partnership. There are times when instead of breaking into our lives to solve our problems for us, God comes alongside of us and chooses to confront problems with us, chooses to ask us to bring our creativity and our energy and our risking along with God's. My good friend Joe Klein, uh, uh, Rabbi Emeritus uh, over at Temple Emmanuel in Oak Park, uh, is the one who shared with me a, a story from the Jewish Midrash uh, about the famous story of the Hebrews crossing the Red Sea. And you will remember the story, how um, after repeated demands and increasingly serious plagues, eventually the e Egyptian pharaoh agreed to let the people go. And so, uh, in haste, the people packed up all of their goods. Uh, the, the bread didn't even have time to rise in the oven. And they took off across the desert into an unknown future, the promised land. But as they approached the Red Sea, you remember Pharaoh changed his mind. And so here come the chariots and the horsemen hot on the people's heels. And... Uh, as the Hebrews are standing by the sea with Pharaoh's armies closing in each moment, Moses is standing there pleading his case to God, waving his staff over the waters, but nothing is happening. And the Midrash says that there was a Hebrew by the name of Nachshon ben Aminibah, the leader of the tribes of Judah. Nachshon looks out over this scene, the armies coming up behind him, freedom waiting on the other side, and he says, I am not going back to Egypt, nor am I waiting for somebody else to take responsibility for my freedom. And with that, Nakshon decides to risk everything, and he dives into the water, though Nakshon cannot swim. And the story is that when the water reached as high as his nose, the Lord looked down and said, so, at least there is one 
who is completely relying on some, who is not completely relying on someone else to do everything for him. And so for the sake of Nakshon, the Lord parted the seas. Now, if you think about it, that really is a more adult way of doing life. When we are children, everything needs to be done for us. But part of growing up is growing into our responsibility of taking our place in the drama. So a second way that the divine comes is to come alongside of us and work with us in the whole cooperative venture. Robert Ferry Capon uh, tells a story about a sexton in a, a Jewish synagogue who came in one Friday afternoon and said to the rabbi, I quit. I'm out of here. I simply don't believe in what we're doing anymore. As of today, I'm through. And uh, the rabbi said, well, I, I don't know why you would do this. You're one of our most valued employees, almost 30 years. Why? He said, I've already told you I just don't believe in it anymore. I, I don't think there's anything to it. And the rabbi said, well, why do you say that? He said, well, I'll give you an example. He said, uh, every Friday afternoon, as the sun is going down and as the Sabbath is about to begin, I have gone into our holy space with the words of Moses right there on the wall. I have knelt down and asked God to help me win the lottery. And God doesn't listen. And the rabbi said, well, I don't think that's really a fair test, but you know, here it is. Friday, the sun is going down. Maybe I can help you with your technique. <laughs> so uh, in they go. The sun is going down. Here are the 10 words. And uh, the man kneels down and says, Lord God, king of the universe, help me to win the lottery. And with that, a booming voice comes from the rafters and says, Moshe, Moshe, give me a break. Buy a ticket. <laughs> so sometimes God works with us and not just for us. However, there is a third way um, that the grace to help comes to us in times of trouble, and it is for sure the most overlooked because it is the quietest and it is the, most, the least dramatic. But sometimes, instead of solving our problems for us, instead of coming alongside to solve our problems with us, sometimes the grace to help comes in the form of just giving us the strength to endure what we cannot change. And what changes is in us. You remember that the Apostle Paul suffered from what he called a thorn in the flesh. And we're never sure what that is, some physical ailment, probably something having to do with his eyesight. And he begged God to heal him. He also, I'm sure, wherever he went, looked up doctors who would help him. But finally, as you know from that wonderful passage in 2 Corinthians, God said to Paul, I am not going to take this thorn away from you. I am not going to give you the ability to do it on your own. But what I would, will give you, Paul, is I will give you grace sufficient to bear this and to endure it. And what will change will be in you. 
Now that is by far the least dramatic. It is so far from being rescued or delivered to find ourselves in circumstances day in and day out with no power to change it. And all we get is the strength to endure. And yet I want to suggest to you this morning that that is as much a gift of the grace of God as is some splashy, dramatic miracle. Two months after John Claypool's daughter, Laura Lou, died of leukemia, he was just beginning his ministerial responsibilities again, though he said his heart was really not in it. And one day he was making rounds at the hospital and um, he ran into an old friend, uh, his friend the rabbi, uh, who he hadn't seen since Laura Lou's death. And so they stepped off to the side and uh, of course the rabbi was commiserating with him. Um, but then out of nowhere he startled John by saying, I, I just need to ask you something, honest engine, man to man. Did God do anything for you in all of that darkness that you and your family have been through? And John said he was taken aback. He obviously hadn't expected that. Um, but it was obvious from the intensity in this man that he really wanted to know. And uh, so John didn't answer immediately. In fact, he said he stood there and just kind of went through the whole ordeal in his mind. He said, I had to admit that though I had begged God to heal Laura Lou and thousands with me, that had not occurred. We had gotten the best medical collaboration we could possibly find, incredible doctors and nurses, but all that they knew finally was incapable of stopping this terrible disease. So there was no collaborative solution. But then he said, standing in that hospital lobby, it came to me with a clarity I had never known before that God had done something. God had given us the gift to endure. And in enduring, had brought about changes in our lives that would never have come in another way. John said the transformation that took place in his daughter was absolutely amazing. She was all of eight and a half years old when all of this developed. He said a way of coping and a bravery arose in her that was absolutely amazing. He said on several occasions when the doctors were poking and prodding and he himself felt like he really didn't feel like he could take it another minute. He just wanted to run away and hide. From somewhere the strength came to stay and to be there with her and for her. And remarkably, he said, there came to me an incredible sense of life as gift rather than entitlement that I had never known before. Now I realize that is not as dramatic. It is surely not what we first want. But if you will let your expectations of God include all three of these, if you will be open to the miracle that does for us, and at the same time the collaboration that works with us, and at the same time the grace to endure that changes 
things in us, if you will expect all three of these, I believe you can live into hope without setting yourself up for disappointment. Isaiah was right. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Amen.